Welcome to podcast number 28, Isolation, Depression, and Anxiety. Uh, This is a bonus podcast. Uh, Today's podcast is more of a bonus podcast because it's not my normal weekly podcast. And I've also heard many stories about people dealing with depression and anxiety during this isolation time frame we've been in. Now, what is as important as checking on those who do suffer from clinical depression and anxiety in isolation is to check on those who will temporarily develop the problem as symptoms of isolation. Symptoms for those who experience them for the first time can be bewildering and actually beguiling on many levels. It is important to remember that you don't need to have a family history, a genetic predisposition, or really any reason to experience the symptoms of anxiety and depression. The illness doesn't look for a particular individual personality type, a life experience, particular ages, and actually can strike more randomly than anyone might think. While we watch out for our friends and family who do suffer, and who we do know have mental illness, we should also be keenly aware of others who might be experiencing symptoms and help them understand the nature of temporary depression and anxiety, brought about by external forces and experiences beyond their control, such as a forced isolation. Now, for some reason, I have avoided this particular subject. Perhaps I had hoped that if I didn't talk about it or our isolation perhaps might end sooner. I'm not sure exactly what it was. I suppose that really seems strange. I suppose that a mental illness and a love for baseball has brought out a far stronger superstitious streak in me than I would have liked to admit. And now we as a church and of a people have been isolated from each other for longer than any time in current history. Yes, there was a pandemic and isolation early in last century, 100 years ago, but it was far different in many ways. And most of those who experienced it really are probably on the other side of the veil. But is it, what is it about isolation that makes depression and anxiety so real to so many? There are even those who never thought that they had such an illness. Now, we have phones, we have social media, we keep in touch, there's daily news coverage, but it seems that during an isolation, we have never been so far apart from one another. Now, recently, my wife and children were apart from me for about a month, which honestly really isn't all that long. I grew up in a Navy town, so a month isn't much. Although I am not Navy, nor are my parents, I had seen wives, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters wait out to a year for a returning member of the service. I had never thought much about depression and anxiety during such a separation isolation. That short month, month, which felt far longer for me, helped me to further understand and refine what this isolation does to the body and mind. I still suffer a little with depression uh, due to some aches and pains and restricted activities of my autoimmune illness. I had never thought much about what isolation from friends, families, children, and life does to the psyche and physical body. The body and mind, whether we desire it to or not, goes through a period of what we call grieving, when we are isolated physically from those we love and desire to be around. It's a chemistry thing. Even though I could talk to my wife and children when I wanted, that was actually insufficient for my body and mind. And actually the depressions depressions would worsen and anxieties deepen. Now, they never became serious. Now, also, I, well, having had much depression in my life, now I could tell what it was and what was actually causing the issue. 
I know that touch, physical presence, and even the normal noise of human life is important to the mind and body. Our body chemistry is greatly enhanced in positive ways by having individuals around us providing for security, love, identity, and friendship. When you remove these stabilizing forces from around us, even the small ones, such as just saying hello at church or greeting someone after a meeting, the mind and body grieve for the loss. This can be terribly difficult for individuals who haven't experienced it before, depression and anxiety, as they don't fully understand what is happening to the body. While no one has died or anything has really changed except for an isolation, um, and the personal removal of people from your immediate presence, the effect can be similar in many ways to perhaps a death or an accident. We can feel as though we've lost something, a peace, a happiness, even our minds. It is interesting to note how much we share with one another and how much we actually use each other's presence and brains to store memories and to discuss ideas and find comfort and similarities. If you talk to someone who has recently lost a spouse or a very good friend to death, and they've been together for a while, they will tell you that they not only feel depressed, but they feel like they've lost a part of their minds. In some ways, it's actually true what that they have. One of our methods of connecting with those around us is to store memories, ideas, thoughts, expressions, and so forth in another's brain. This is especially true in a spousal relationship, but it can be true in a very good friendship, a child-parent relationship, and almost any relationship we develop. It is something we do to connect us to one another. We need to see, hear, and talk with those individuals to recall what we have stored in the other's brains and also to connect. Yes, we certainly can call one another, but voice is only a part of communication and is actually a small part of communication. We actually communicate far more in our body language, our tone, our expressions than we do simply in our voice. So a voice is not the same for us or our bodies. Or our mind. Does it help? Absolutely. It can always help to hear a voice, even see a face as we do on some calls. However, something's always missing when the individual isn't present. We literally are missing something from our lives when we are unable to be physically present and communicate with someone. And we can feel loss without normal individuals in our lives. Individuals that would, I guess, perhaps be normally in our lives. Something similar to mourning is what you would experience. If you are faced with depression and anxiety and all of the mental illness difficulties that accompany those problems, isolation is actually probably the worst possible scenario for the disease. The first thing you have lost is a physical presence support network. The body treats this loss as though the network has in some ways collapsed. The body and mind grieve for the loss, and this increases stress on the body and mind, and depressions can and often do intensify. Anxiety can be especially affected by an isolating event. Often we use others to ease symptoms of anxiety. The physical presence can be as important or more important than the voice itself. Isolation increases the stress on the mind, and the mind increases the level of anxiety. Honestly, each reinforcing one another. Sometimes we purposely isolate. Now, sometimes we do purposely isolate ourselves with, with mental illness, trying to cope with the illness. For that, for that period of time, our body seems to understand why we are isolating and also that the network is there and we can always return. 
However, a forced isolation brings upon us the added anxiety that the support network is not as easily accessed as it once was. So a forced isolation also restricts physical movement and activities. While they might have not always brought us joy, they provided some form of what we'll call diverted attention. We could put our minds on other things and activities to ease the burdens of depression and anxiety. Now, forced isolation is probably the worst possible scenario for those with mental illness. Left to their own brains, thoughts, and desires, isolated isolated from comforting networks, diversionary activities, uh, that person is truly left to the merciless badgering of a disease that just simply doesn't relent. Even the nature of the forced isolation can bring further distress as the individual cannot choose to do things to divert attention and to provide for hope. If the isolation is indefinite, a loss of hope can accompany the illness. So it's important to have an end to the isolation. Hope is the one true saving grace in depression and anxiety. The loss of hope due to the unknown, like the unknown end of an isolation, can almost be a fatal blow to an already deteriorating situation. I'm not talking about suicide, but deep depressions and deep difficulties. Now, what I am trying to say perhaps in far too many words, is that an epidemic isolation with what we are faced now with mental illness can make the mental illness far more damaging than even the epidemic itself. If you know someone who has depression, anxiety, or other concerns with mental illness, forced isolations are a time to make sure that you contact them regularly and that they are coping with it in healthy ways. If you have a mental illness, and isolation has caused serious issues with your health and mental stability, then you must do what you can to reach out to help from others. Um, I realize that we're all living under some type of restrictions, and we should do our best to work within those restrictions. However, if you need to go to a friend's house, a family home, or other location because life is becoming increasingly difficult to live, then that's what you do. I'm not asking you to throw a party of 100 people, but you will need to be around your support networks and those who can help on a more regular basis. Now, even if you don't have a mental illness, but feel as though something is wrong, I recommend the same thing. Find someone, a location, a friend, a family that can help. Depression depression and anxiety can happen to anyone. It does not need a genetic invitation to show up unannounced. Depression and anxiety are also symptoms of the psychology of the mind that our body uses to tell us that it isn't happy with its current situation. Depression and anxiety can be baffling to someone who's never really experienced it. It can feel as though the whole world has come to an end, or minimally, something is very wrong. I found this especially true for those who are socially inclined, but then isolated from the sociality they once enjoyed. Social people require social interactions to maintain a healthy mental balance. Now, this balance can be quickly upset when a forced isolation occurs. If you know someone who enjoys a very social nature... It is important to check with them on a regular basis and to talk with them about life. Even if they seem just fine, they are more likely than not to be hurting and need some help. And we all learn to mask our emotions at least a little bit in our lives. It's very rare to see someone who keeps their current emotional state always on their shoulder for everyone to see. Now, I know this may sound strange, but people who have mental illness and have regular depressive episodes are far more likely to be able to better deal with a depression by isolation than someone who has experienced it for the very first time. Depression and or the anxiety when it comes the first time is a terrible feeling. 
and the longer it stays the first time, the worse it will be for the individual. This doesn't mean that they're going to develop clinical depression and have depression the rest of their life. It's far more likely that once things return to normal, so will they, but in the interim, it is important to provide support for them at a regular level. Now, how can you tell if someone's even depressed or suffering, even if they don't know it? The first thing they will do is to begin to reach out to individuals in various ways. Things like they may post more on social media, the posts are more likely to be something that would catch attention. They may begin to post things to help other people. Um, they may increase service opportunities. They also may just do the opposite. They may reduce the amount they post. They may go away from social media. They may isolate further to see if anyone notices. They may reach out in subtle ways, trying to serve other people in an effort to ease their own confusion and pain. There is no doubt that service can provide this type of hope and temporary joy. However, they need someone to reach back to them often. Their service for them is really twofold. They do desire the good feelings that come with service, but they are also looking for someone to take notice of them. This is not some kind of self-aggrandizement of their service. Their mind and body are literally looking for the good feelings of approval and social concern that have been taken from them. They want to know that someone cares about what they are doing. They need to know that they are needed and making a difference. Sometimes a call out of the blue, a phone call out of the blue, a little time on the phone, or even better, a person in, better in person can make a big difference. Now, you may not see the real difference in them. They may not say anything, but I can tell you that they are make, that you are making a significant difference for them. What else might you notice? This one's going to be a little more difficult to tell for a person who does not know the individual very well. If you know them even reasonably well, you will notice changes in language, tone of voice, and expressions in body language. You will notice changes in normal habits. They will not seem happy doing the things they used to love to do. They might seem restless, unsettled, and it can even come across as frustrated, anger, and a sadness. The difficulty is that someone who has not experienced depression or who or has only felt it a few times may not even recognize what they are feeling as symptoms of depression or anxiety. Remember that these illnesses change the mental reality, not just emotions. They can't see themselves emotionally in a mirror. So they are going to feel as though something has changed. Things are different than before. They may show an increased desire to be physically close to someone. Touch actually increases good brain chemistry. They may also show just the opposite effect, not really wanting affection or physical touch so that they are trying to match the emotions they're feeling. If you suspect someone is feeling it during this period of isolation, there's no need to run to a doctor or go see a psychiatrist. Isolated depression and anxiety during a lockdown or some kind of an isolation is actually quite normal for many people. They are only going to experience it during the isolation period. Uh, once things return to a more normal state, they will return to a more balanced mental state. Although you will have to understand that it doesn't happen in one day, this return. It takes time for the soul and body and mind to return to normal phases of mental activity. If you see the changes and think that depression or anxiety might be the cause of the change, the best thing to do is discuss it as a possible temporary illness for them. Look up the symptoms with them and talk about those symptoms. You will find that if someone can see that the body and mind are having a reaction to the lockdown and will likely return to normal, a, big, a large weight will be lifted. 
Now, this doesn't mean that the feelings are going to go away because you seem to have found the cause. You're going to need to treat it like any other type of depression and anxiety until the isolation relaxes. You need to make sure that you exercise, you eat right, you sleep the needed hours, but not much more. Find activities that will help you to take your mind off the situation at hand. Likely, you will need to avoid fixation upon the lockdown and the pandemic. Certainly extra exercise, like just walks with a friend, talking are helpful. Making sure that you are keeping in touch with your social network and not just on Instagram or Facebook. If you can visit them without causing issues, that can be very helpful. In other words, you need to be cautious even more than you ever have been before about your mental thought patterns. Certainly all of the spiritual things you can do will help. But remember, you may not find that you enjoy them as you once did. That is fine. That is just okay. There are no issues with that. The joy will return in time and with the eventual lifting of restrictions. Consider the movies you might be watching, the music you might be listening to, and the books you're reading. Try to avoid those that would cause stressful feelings, depressed feelings, and other types of mood-altering situations. Your body is going to drive you crazy, that you need to do more, to be more, to serve more, and that, and you should serve as much as you can but you will have the tendency to overdo it because your body is looking for uh, the approval that it has lost. Just know that your body is grieving and it needs some help to work through the feelings. Understand that those feelings are not you, but are symptoms of the external forces. Once the external forces subside, things are very likely to return to normal given some time. Now, isolation for those who suffer in silence with mental illness can be and often is just an added burden to the already overwhelming weight they feel. It is very important that those support networks reach out and make sure that they know that simply their network cares and is concerned. Most of the time, those who support others who suffer may never know how much good they have done. But in my experience, they make a world of difference. And after all is said and done, then you can appeal to the Lord, and he will always be there. Well, that's all I have for today and about the isolation. But remember, the Lord requires the fight, no matter how small, and then he can do his part.